Section 51 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 51. The Impregnable Trenches, 1916. By Henry Sheehan. The principal element of this modern warfare is lack of mobility. The lines advance, the lines retreat, but never once, since the establishment of the present trench wave, have the lines of either combatant been pushed clear out of the normal zone of hostilities. The fierce invisible combats are limited to the first line positions, averaging a mile each way behind no man's land. This stationary character has made the war a daily battle, it has robbed war of all its ancient panoply, its cavalry, its uniforms brilliant as the sun, and has turned it into the national business. To this end, in numberless sectors along the front, special narrow-gauge railroad lines have been built directly from the road station at the edge of the shell zone to the artillery positions. To this end, the trenches have been gathered into a special telephone system, so that General Joffre at Chantilly, can talk to any officers or soldiers anywhere along this wave. The food, supplies, clothing, and ammunition are delivered every day at the gate of this wave, and calmly redistributed to the trenches by a sort of military express system. Only one thing ever disturbs the vast, orderly system. The bony fingers of death will persist in getting into the cogs of the machine. The first-line trenches, in a position at all contested, are very apt still to preserve the hurried arrangement of their first plan, which is sometimes hardly any plan at all. It must be admitted that the Germans have the advantage in the great majority of cases, for theirs was the first choice, and they entrenched themselves, as far as possible, along the crests of the eastern hills of France, in a line prepared for just such an exigency. It being out of the question to strengthen or rectify very much the front-line trenches close to the enemy, the effort has taken place in the rear lines. Wherever there is a certain security, the rear lines of all the important strategic points have been converted into veritable subterranean fortresses. The floor plan of these trenches is an adaptation of the military theory of fortification, with its angles, salients, and bastions, to the topography of the region. The gigantic concrete wall of the bomb-proof shelters, the little forts to shelter the machine-guns, and the concrete passages in the rear-line trenches will appear as heavy and massive to future generations as Roman masonry appears to us. There are, of course, many unimportant little links of the trench system, upon whose holding nothing depends, and for whose domination neither side cares to spend the life of a single soldier that only have an apology for a second position. The war needs the money for the preparation of important places. At vital points there may be the tremendously powerful second line, a third line, and even a fourth line. The region between Verdun and the lines, for instance, is the most fearful snarl of barbed wire, pits, and buried explosives that could be imagined. The distance would have to be contested inch by inch. The trench theory is built about the soldier. It must preserve him as far as possible from artillery and from the infantry attack. The defences begin with barbed wire, then come the rifles and machine-guns, and behind them the light artillery, the seventy-fives, 
and the heavy artillery, the 120s, the 220s, and now an immense howitzer whose real calibre has been carefully concealed. To take a trench position means the crossing of the entanglements of no man's land under fire from artillery, rifles, and machine guns, an almost impossible proceeding. An advance is possible only after the opposing trenches have been made untenable by the concentration of artillery fire. The great offensives begin by blowing the first lines absolutely to pieces. This accomplished, the attacking infantry advances to the vacated trenches under the rifle fire of those few whom the deluge of shells has not killed or crazed, works toward the strong second position under a concentrated artillery fire of the retreating enemy as terrible as its own, fights its way heroically into the second position, and stops there. The great line has been bent, has been dented, but never broken. An offensive must cover at least twenty miles of front, for if the break is too narrow, the attacking troops will be massacred by the enemy artillery at both ends of the broken first lines. If the front lines are one mile deep, the artillery must put twenty-five square miles of trenches hors de combat, a task that takes millions of shells. By the time that the first line has been destroyed, and the troops have reached the second lines, the shells and the men are pretty well used up. A great successful offensive on the Western Front is theoretically possible, given millions of men, but practically impossible. Outside of important local gains, the great Western offensives have been failures. End of section 51. This recording is in the public domain.